you can turn where it says Genesis chapter 12 and just kind of walk through who is this dude because we're going to talk about him quite a bit tonight. And if, if I you know, need to go through that kind of with you, that's totally cool. Understand that Paul's audience would have gone, oh, Abraham, of course, everybody knows about him. And they would have known a lot. And then there was also a whole bunch of tradition around Abraham as well. Um, in addition to what the scripture has. So like he was he was the big dude. He is the father of many nations. He's if you're in Jesus Christ tonight, he is your father. Um, and uh, he was considered obviously he is literally the father of uh, the Jews. Uh, he is literally the father of the nation, the Edomites, and, and he is also literally the father of the descendants of Ishmael, typically considered to be the Arabs. And so um, you know, that, that's a lot of people. That's the father of many nations, literally. He's also, by faith, the father of everyone who is in faith. So that's a lot of people. You think of every person who's ever been in faith, Old Testament and New, every Christian, every follower of God um, before Christ, he is their father through, through faith. And it's sort of like, you know, you kind of, Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world. Genesis chapter 3 um, sin enters in, and, and then like 3 through 11, it's just a mess. It's just a total, total mess. And there's going to get a flood in there that wipes out all of humanity. Uh, things don't get that much better after the flood. You've got uh, the Tower of Babel, and God confuses everybody, and they're all speaking different languages. I mean, I think it's just a mess. It's just people are going further and further apart. And, and God, it says at one point, he was sorry. He repented he made man. I don't know what the, that exactly means in the mind of a God who is eternal, but it's just a way of expressing, you know, when it says that the, the hand of God is against it. We don't see God actually having a hand. We, we, we understand that it's a way to try to express it. And, and so in that way, like, God is just it's trying to get down that and God is just like, what? this is a mess. This is a mess. And then comes his plan. And his plan is, okay, I am going to work again in mankind. I'm not going to give up on this planet spinning around this second-rate star in this galaxy somewhere. I am I'm going to actually work with these people. And so I have a plan that's going to span thousands of years, and it's going to be a plan that's going to blow the minds of anybody, and we know it from this end, you know, as the coming of Jesus Christ, uh, as a representative of the people of Israel, a people of God. And we know all that from this end, but it had to start somewhere. It started with Abraham. It was like, I'm going to start over with, with the human race. And it's going to start with this guy, Abraham. And why him? Don't know in particular, but he was part of uh, Ur, sort of, if you like, kind of part of Iraq, down by the kind of Persian Gulf there. And uh, God came to him, basically, and said, you know what? Change of address, bud. We're going to Canaan. We're going to what's now called Israel. And you're going to live there. And so Abraham left everything, and he went. And he just sort of responded in faith to God. And, and God decided to make a covenant with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, this really important promise and, and the, the, the promise was way bigger than Abraham could ever have imagined, but it involved a, a number of things. And so in chapter 12, he comes to this, this Abraham, go from your country, from your people and your father's household to a land I will show you. And then he says, I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, all the people on earth will be blessed through you. And if you put this with all of the other promises that God made to Abraham, essentially he's saying there's, there's going to be land involved, the nation of Israel. There's going to be land involved. There's going to be blessing involved. And there's going to be descendants involved. There's going to be uh, seed is the word that's used. 
And Paul makes a point in Galatians that the seed is singular and it's Christ, in fact, that's being promised here, as well as his descendants. And all of this is in, in these verses. So, so Abraham does it. He takes his wife, Sarah, his nephew, Lot. That wasn't necessarily a good idea. And he goes and he, he, he comes to Canaan and he builds an altar there. And we see that there in verse 7. He builds an altar and, and the Lord appears to him. And so he's, he's responding to the Lord. He's obeying the Lord. Um, he, he goes to Bethel and he puts an altar there. And that's why uh, every second church in town is called Bethel. Um, you know, this is just the place that, that he's meeting with God. And then he goes towards the Negev, which is, of course, part of, of, of Israel now. So that's Genesis 12. God makes this promise to Abraham. Genesis 15 is going to make a covenant with Abraham now, okay? This is going to be a covenant. And this covenant is way bigger than Abraham could ever imagine. And a covenant is a solemn agreement. The closest thing we've got to it is marriage, where we covenant together before God to stay together for life. That's a covenant. That's why divorce, that's why breaking a marriage is so serious in God's sight, because it's this covenant relationship. And God is making a covenant, and as a covenant maker, he never breaks them. We, on our end, mess up about every ten seconds, but he never breaks his covenant. So he's making a covenant. Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Now, Abraham is at this point in his 80s, okay? 80 years old. That sounds not too bad, and uh, it, uh, Sarah's in her 70s. You know, okay, it's kind of a nice time to kind of get in there with God. Only problem is, God has promised him that he's going to have many nations coming from him. Now, if you're going to have many nations coming, you've got to have at least one what? Child. Child. Kind of helps, right? Okay? You sort of have to have some offspring, right? And uh, Abraham's looking at Sarah and looking in the mirror and thinking, this is uh, really not looking good here, God. You know what I'm saying? Um, don't, don't, but don't, but then God's like, you know, just keep spouting this stuff. I am your shield, your great reward. And Abraham says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me? What could this great reward be? Since, you see where I am, verse 3, verse, yeah, 2 of chapter 15. Since uh, I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. That just happens to be his servant, okay? So that actually made sense. Your servant, if you didn't have a child, your, your chief servant would inherit your estate. So Eleazar was going to do it. So essentially, he's saying, now he's, Abraham says, and you have given me no children, so a servant of my household will be my heir. So essentially, he's, he's saying, well, God, um, it was nice of you to promise the nations thing. I appreciate that. The blessing is nice. Um, clearly, though, you missed kind of a key point here. I, I can't have any kids, so I'll just kind of help you out, God. Uh, and I'll make a little suggestion. I'll suggest that my servant may, in fact, inherit my... And then maybe through him, you know, Eleazar will be the guy. And sorry you, you couldn't figure this out yourself, God, but I'll, I'll help you up and put Eleazar in there, and then you'll see that that's the way it's going to have to be. Um, <laughs> the word of the Lord came to Abraham. This man will not be your heir, but a son is coming from your own body, and he will be your heir. He took him outside and he says, look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Abraham, just try counting these stars. And you don't even know the half of it. You, you think with your naked eye you see a lot of stars. you got no idea. But just, just have a look at these stars. I just want to talk to you about these stars. Try counting them. Yeah, good luck with that. So shall your offspring be. In other words, you will not be able to count your offspring. It is like so much bigger, Abraham, than you think it is. 
Now let me jump to Genesis uh, 17. And uh, we read there, Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That is so important that we understand that. It's in uh, 15, and it's in 17. And in both cases, um, God has told him that he's going to have this child, and it's going to come through him. And in that moment, Abraham has a moment of faith and goes, all right, God, I choose to believe you. I choose to believe you. And that faith in the promise of God, and that's all it was. He didn't know anything about Christ. He couldn't imagine what on earth God was talking about. But all he knew, God had said he would have a child. And in in that moment, maybe not the day before, maybe not the next day, but in that moment, he believed, and God credited to him as righteousness. So that's right there in the Genesis text. He also says to him, as for Sarah, your wife, you're not longer to call her Sarai. Your name will be Sarah. And I will bless her, and surely you will have a son by her. So let's be really clear, Abraham, that this is by your wife Sarah. Okay? No other plan here. I will bless her, and she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man who is a hundred years old? He's getting a little older now. Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael may come under your blessing. No, 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 just just a minute here. Just a minute. I'm sorry, there's actually a mistake here in the notes. It's Genesis 15, verse 6, where it says Abraham believes God. Okay? That's, that's when he's first arrived. That's when he's 75 years old. That's actually really important. Sorry about the mistake. So it's, uh, it's Genesis 15, verse 6. So he's just arrived. He's 75 years old. Sarah is 65. Now, you know what? People did live a little bit longer then. Abraham's dad lived to 200, okay? So that's, that's not bad. So if you live to 200, maybe you're still bearing children at 65. I don't know. Maybe. I, I don't know how it works, okay? So, I mean, we, I think we have, can we have an octo-mom that just, that just had kids at 65 or something like that? So, okay, it's not, not beyond the realm of possibility. So he believes God, and it's credited to him as righteousness. Now, that's important because Abraham, this is on podcasts. Jordan is developing a podcast system here. So everything I say tonight could go out into cyberspace and be there forever. So I just want to tell you, as I talk about all these things tonight, this is just a little added pressure for me, you know what I'm saying? So anyway... Um, I'll be like Mark Driscoll, who has to apologize for it anyway. (laughs) So, this is just so important to get, because way back then, he believes God, and he credits him as righteousness. And later on, Paul's going to make a big deal of this, okay, and say that that's when he was in faith. That's when he was justified. Paul's going to make a huge deal of that. So in our parlance, he is now, although he doesn't know it, he wouldn't say it this way, he's in Christ. He is eternally saved at that moment because he has practiced saving faith. Now, this is 25 years later. He tried out Eleazar. Ah, no, sorry, not happening. Now, now, what I didn't actually read to you is that he had a nasty little plan in those 25 years. And he believed God, but now he was getting, okay, this is, this is ridiculous. I'm getting old. Sarah's getting old. This is not going to happen. I don't know what God was thinking. So I got a plan. I could probably still have kids, even though Sarah can't. She's never been able to have them. So what I'll do is, is actually with Sarah's idea, and she said, I'll take my maid called Hagar, and my maid, and I'll bring her to Abraham. The two of them will uh, have sex, and they will have a child, but it'll be legally Abraham's, and since she's my maid, it'll kind of be mine too. 
So that was the plan, and from that, Ishmael was born. That's the father of all of the, the Arabs and, and uh, wonderful people group, but one that has been at enmity with uh, Jewish people, you know, for, for some time. And that had perhaps its basis back there in what, uh, in what, Ish, in what uh, Abraham did. Poor, poor choice. A D minus in faith for Abraham. Okay? Um, because he's saying essentially, God, you're not going to do it. I have to take matters into my own hands and make this happen. And somehow through my maneuvering, your promise will be fulfilled. So she has this uh, child. Uh, and then Hagar is mistreated by Sarah. It's terrible. It's an awful, awful story. God goes and meets with Hagar. And she is the first person on the planet to see God. To know that he is the God who really sees and she, Hagar, has this beautiful experience with God because God was not impressed, and he is the God of the outcast. So just understand that. But this was not going to get in the way of God's plan. Even this major, major slip-up. And Abraham had other ones. He went down to Egypt because there was a famine. And, and um, I, I, okay, Sarah's like in her 60s here, late 60s. And he thinks the Pharaoh's going to kind of take a, a, you know, a shining to, to her. And he'll be killed. So he says, okay, don't tell her you're my wife. Tell her you're my sister. Well, sort of half-true. She was his half-sister, which is kind of creepy in our time, but not that. Um, and so, you know, just tell her that you're my sister. So he doesn't. So the deal is, it kind of reading between the uh, Hebrew lines there, Pharaoh actually took her to be his wife, it looks like, and was sort of slipping Abraham the odd goat, you know, on the side as sort of a little present. And, and so God, you know says, this is bad news, and the Pharaoh's like, I can't believe what he's done, why did you ever lie to me, you know, get out of here, take your goats with you, and off he goes. This happens another time, same deal, another time, he's lying half the time, so like, he's not, he's not a dude that's perfect in his faith, but he did believe on that occasion, and it was credited to him as righteousness, it's really important to understand those things, um, uh, you know, and, and we don't need to go into all the whole story with Lot, and that whole thing as well, but there were some really good times in his life. There was a time when a guy called Melchizedek, which is this sort of really mysterious figure that people think might actually be Christ, and that, that Abraham came and gave a tenth of all of his, his uh, belongings to, sort of you know, giving God that due as he paid these, tenth, these uh, tithes to Melchizedek. So there's a really up and down story for, uh, for Abraham. But like this, this Ishmael thing was a real big deal. So now popping back into the text that you have, verse 15 of Chapter 17, God says to Abraham, sorry, sorry, let's, let's skip down. Yeah, so Abraham's falling on his face and he's laughing as he said to himself. So 25 years ago, yes, God, I believe you. It's credited to him as righteousness. Now he's falling face down, laughing, not in the spirit, okay? He's falling face down and laughing to himself saying, will a son be born to a man 100 years old? God, this is the funniest thing I've ever heard. Sarah, have a child at 90. Now that's a good one, God. And Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. I know I didn't do a very good job, and I know I kind of messed up back there, and, and you know, maybe Hagar got kind of bad deal. But you know what, still, God, surely you could just make it all better. Now, you know, I, I know we messed up, but surely you could just make Ishmael the guy, because he's already here. God said, yes, which is interesting. He will live under my blessing, thank you very much. That's not a problem, okay? But your wife, Sarah, will bear a son. It's still going to happen, Abraham, all right? And I will call him, you will call him Isaac, which means laughter. 
which is really funny, I think. Um, I will establish my covenant with him, an eternal covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, uh, I've heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and it greatly increases numbers. And I think we could say that's historically certainly happened. He'll be the father of 12 rulers. I'll make him into a great nation. But, but, my covenant I will establish with Isaac, because that's the plan I had all along. It's not changed with all the messing up that you've done. Whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year, when he finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. Chapter 18, he comes back. Where's your wife Sarah? There in the tent. Then the Lord said, I will surely return about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, it's Sarah's chance to have a little belly laugh. She is listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him, okay? So she's sort of behind where, where God's standing. Doesn't know it's God, just thinks it's a man. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing, not to mention the fact that she was barren, could not bear children. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, I will now have this pleasure. I think there's a drooping sarcasm in there. Like this, yeah, that would just be real pleasure. Yeah, let me tell you. Um, then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, and she lied and said, I did not laugh. But God said, yes, you did laugh. (laughs) (laughs) Chapter 21. The Lord was gracious to Sarah, and as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he promised, Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At that very time, God had promised him. God gave him the name Isaac, which means laughter. Um, So it was a different kind of laughter now, and the son Sarah bore him. When uh, he was eight days old, he circumcised him and so on, and, and, uh, and, and on it goes. And then Sarah says, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me, and not at me. And she added, um, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? Genesis 22. At the same time, sometime later, God tested Abraham, here I am. Take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac. That means begotten son, like you're the son of promise. And go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain. I will show you. And Abraham uh, is willing to do that. You need to also understand that Isaac by this time is, uh, is at least a teenager, if not older. So he was clearly, uh, you know, he, he could have fought off this hundred-year-old dad if he had a, an inkling to. So he also was being obedient. And so he did that. Um, and, and, and so there's, you know, questions back and forth. Um, and you know the story, how he's about to be sacrificed, and uh, what's going on? Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God himself will provide a lamb for the burnt offering. And the two of them went together. Well, we find it from the book of Hebrews, that in, in Abraham's mind, the only way this was going to work out is that if Abraham, that if Isaac died, God would have to raise him from the dead. That's the only way this was going to happen because uh, he knew that this was the only promise that God had made. So he was trusting God completely. When they reached the place God told him about, Abraham built the altar, he was about to sacrifice Isaac. The angel of the Lord cried out from heaven, Abraham, here I am. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. Now that I know that you fear God, you have not withheld your son from me, your only son, your only begotten son, the son of promise. Abraham looked up, and in the thicket there was a ram caught by the horns. He went over and took the ram, sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide. To this day, it said, it is called the mountain on which the Lord 
provided. Okay, so all of that is the important thing you got to know as we jump into Romans chapter 4. Okay, this is um, an incredible test of faith. Now, what's Paul going to say this about this? Okay, he's talked about a righteousness from God, a righteousness from God that is by faith. Okay, now Paul wants to prove that from Scripture. Now, if he's going to prove that, he could use a bunch of different things. But, frankly, he has chosen the hardest job of all. And that's to prove it from the life of Abraham. Because every Jewish person at the time, and certainly he as a Pharisee, would have grown up knowing this, believing this, believed that Abraham was considered then the only righteous man of his generation. So, of the people alive, when Abraham was alive, any Jew living in Jesus' day would consider Abraham to be the only righteous man. So the popular notion was God had chosen Abraham because he was the only candidate available on the planet. He was the only righteous man there was. So in other words, he was chosen for his what? His merit. Okay? So if you were going to prove... Paul, you need to know that we're saved by our merit, not by faith. They would have appealed to Abraham. So so Paul is going to go in there and use the very guy that they would have used to prove the opposite point. So he's masterful in this. Okay? So I want you to know this. Um, uh, So uh, they believed he was the first of seven people to bring the Shekinah glory of God back. They said he served God from the age of three. They said his righteousness was made complete in the circumcision in anticipation of keeping the law, that he kept the law completely, even though the law hadn't even been written yet. Okay, so that was quite a feat. Um, And they they even believed he was sinless, that he had no need for repentance, that he was perfect in all his deeds, righteous every day of his life. Which is really interesting when you read Genesis, what I just told you about. Righteous every day of his life. Wow, that's something, okay? But that's what they believed about Abraham. So Paul's being pretty bold here. From God's point of view, Abraham had no basis for boasting, despite what his opponents would say, okay? So he's going to prove it from the life of Abraham. Really important to understand that, okay? Um, God could, could do this and be just about it because he knew Christ's future death was a certainty. That's what we looked at last week, right? Okay? So let's look at it. What does the scripture say? Boy, that's a good question, Paul. That is the question you guys need to ask yourself when anything comes up. You read a book that blows your mind. And you think, I've never heard this before. I've never thought of it this way before. This is different than I've been taught. You read a book. What do you have to ask? What does scripture say? It may be the best communicator on the planet. It may be the most fascinating thing. It may even find within your heart a resonance and you go, oh yeah, that seems so right. What does scripture say? What a great question. That is the question. What does scripture say? And the verse he quotes is from the beginning of Abraham's life. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. There's no works in there. Abraham had done nothing at this point. Nothing. God promised him all of these things, including that he would have a child, and he went, in his heart, somewhere in there, it went, yes, I believe you, God. Righteousness. 
Somewhere in your life, if you're a Christian, you heard the gospel message, you heard about Jesus Christ, and at some point in your life, there was just a, yes, I believe it. And in that moment, that faith was credited to you as righteousness, and that's why you were a believer. Now, ten days later, you may do something that's completely out of faith. You may act in a a way that's, you know, whatever. That may happen, just like it did for Abraham. But that faith is credited to you as righteousness, just like it was for Abraham. So you are Abraham's child in that sense. Okay? So this faith of Abraham was the gateway for God's blessing in his life. It was reckoned to him. And that word, it's an Old Testament, it's a Hebrew word, that's used about calling a person something that they are not yet. Crediting with them with something that they do not possess. It's very clear. It's grace. Okay. Now, to anyone who works, the wages are not credited to them as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to anyone who does not work, but trusts God or justifies the ungodly, the faith is credited as righteousness. What's he saying? If you have a job, and you come to payday, and however it is you get paid, you don't have to get a check anymore, or it's all direct deposit for you, uh, but if you get a check, if your employer came in with a huge box, gift wrap, big bowl on top, Corey, is that how it happens? Take them into the lobby, and they and they can hand you a giant gift. And they, all the employees come in and sing, "For he's a jolly good fellow." Corey, we want to give you a gift. We are so kind and generous. We give this, and you open this thing up. What is this gift? And you open up, and there's your check. It's your paycheck. What do you say? I would laugh. He would laugh hysterically. He would laugh hysterically. But would it be a gift? No, it's owed to him. Okay? The employer, if he chose not to pay you, because I just don't feel like giving you this gift this week, Tori, you would what? You would call the police. (laughs) You would take them to court. You would do all sorts of what? It's owed to you. It has to be paid. There's no choice about it. It is owed to you. And so he's saying, if it's a workman, if you're working for your salvation, and it's a question of doing all this stuff, frankly, then God owes you something, right? God owes us nothing. It's not a wage. We don't earn salvation. And he, he owes it to us. We have, we, we have this idea still in the back of our mind. Even though we might understand it in the salvation perspective, we still have the idea that, you know what, God, I don't deserve this. I, th- I tell you, I've got to struggle with this. My, my sister had her first chemo thing today, and, and, and my sister has served God for decades. And I mean really served God for decades. Totally. All her heart loves God. And, you know, I, one of my friends asked me, why does this happen? She doesn't deserve this. I gotta tell you, I, I agree. <laughs> From my perspective, this is dumb. I don't get this. Why? But do you see that within that, there's a real error in thinking? Because if I actually got from God what I deserved, it would be hell. So I don't think I better go to God and ask Him for what I deserve and demand my rights from God. I don't think I better do that. That's a that's a bad idea. So. God doesn't owe me anything. If, he gives, if I receive anything from God, it is, it is a gift. He owes me nothing. But it's a gift. So I'm not a workman working for God and then he pays me a wage. 
It's a gift. So that's really, really important to understand. God owes me nothing. So it goes on. And he's going to talk about David for a while. But the, the, the point that he makes, basically, is David's, in Psalm 32, says, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed are those whose sins the Lord will never count or reckon against them. And you think that's kind of nice that he's written this nice little poem about forgiveness. What we understand, though, is that he wrote this after he had had his affair with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah. And so when he says these words, these words mean a lot. Blessed, David says, he's jubilant, are those whose transgressions are forgiven, sins are covered, whose sins the Lord will not reckon against them. Wow. So Paul is using this as, a, as a, an example. Uh, if, if you want to talk works, what had David earned by his recent activity? Obviously, judgment. But God had granted him forgiveness instead. That's grace. So, now Paul, Paul back to, to Abraham now in verse 9. He says, is this blessedness? What blessedness? The blessedness of forgiveness. So, in his mind, justification, one of the parts of that is forgiveness. This blessedness of forgiveness, is it only for the circumcised? Is it only for the Jew? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Now, that's important. He says, under what? Uh, is it going to be circumstances? Uh, yeah. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. He received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that they had by faith until or while he was still uncircumcised. What's he saying? Check the chronology of it. This is long before chapter 17, when in obedience to God, he was circumcised as an an act of faith on his part. So what he's saying is, Abraham was in faith, justified by faith, when he was a Gentile. That's important to Paul's argument. So no amount of Jewishness, no amount of keeping the law, no amount of uh, either circumcision or any part of the, the, the covenant in that sense was what saved Abraham. Now, we, we go here and go, oh, okay, that's, that's nice. I'm glad Paul made that point. If you're sitting in Rome in 50 AD reading this, this is revolutionary. This is like, I can't believe Paul just said that. Because everybody believed that Abraham was righteous because of his actions. And he was as Jewish as it got. And surely he kept the law. And surely he was saved by his righteousness, by his, by his actions. And you're telling me that he was saved before he was circumcised? So it wasn't the circumcision that saved him? That was absolutely revolutionary in 50 AD in Rome when this letter arrived. This was like the, the ink was still smoking when they read this. This was really, really big stuff when he said this. So therefore, he is the father of all who believe and have not been circumcised. In other words, the Gentiles. In order that the righteousness might be credited to them. He is also the father of the circumcised, the Jew, who are not only circumcised following the law and so on, but who also follow in the footsteps of faith that their father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Does that make sense? So he is the father of all, circumcised or not. It's, it's not that it had no value. Paul would have valued it as part of his Jewish heritage and so on. But it has no saving value. We could say the same thing about baptism today. Baptism has no saving value. 
And so a person who is in faith and is baptized, that's great. But but the act itself has no saving merit. Hear this, hear this, hear this, he'd be saying to the Gentiles. The wall of separation between the two groups is completely gone. It was through the not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise, because it wasn't written for another 430 years. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll just give away that part. But rather, it was, uh, it was a question of promise. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless. What promise? The promise made to Abraham that he would be the heir of the world, the father of many nations. Therefore, the promise comes by faith. So it may be by grace and may be granted to all of Abraham's offspring. This is in verse 16. The promise comes to us by faith. What promise? The promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and 15 and so on. We're in there. We're in there. All the nations being blessed because of Abraham, because of his offspring, Jesus Christ. We are in there. We're there. Promise comes by faith. So maybe grace is granted to all Abraham's offspring, not only those who are of the law, but also those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives light to the dead and calls into being things that were not. He will be our God. Now, if it's by grace, it's not dependent on human effort or merit. It's an interesting phrase, the God who brings life to the dead. Can you think of some examples? Lazarus. Yeah, Lazarus, that would work. What's another one? Jesus. Yeah, kind of a big one, yeah. Okay, which is interesting. Now, hold that thought. Because the scripture is very clear that God the Father brought Jesus back from the dead. Now, there was a reason for that, a very important reason that I think we're going to see. Ephesians chapter 2, it says, you were what in your transgressions and sin? You were dead. You were dead. Now, if you're dead, you can't really do too much, right? You can't save yourself. You can't do that. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. But you have been made alive. So that's part of it. Obviously, in the situation of Abraham, it was Sarah. As far as, as they were concerned, they were as good as dead. So he gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Well, that obviously happened at creation. But I love the verses in First uh, Peter where it talks about, once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you were an outsider, and now you've been chosen, and so on. So then, verse 18, it says, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. I love that. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. So, against all hope, what's that? Well, he looks in the mirror, I'm 100 years old. My wife is 90. There, this is hopeless, and there's no physical reason. This is in the realm of the physical, in the realm of this earth, this is not going to happen. And faith, real faith, real stretching faith, is 
looking at the situation from the perspective of the natural and going, impossible, not going to happen. But then recognizing that there's another realm, there's the spirit realm. In the realm of the spirit, we say, yes, but with God, nothing is impossible. And I will have faith in the promises of God, even in the face of overwhelming, seemingly overwhelming evidence in the physical to the contrary. That's true every time you bury someone that you love. You look in the casket. And you see death. You see that. And you go in the in, 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 and you're gonna tell me that that person who is there dead, I'm going to see them in heaven. It's impossible. Look at it. It's absolutely impossible. They are dead. In the realm of the spirit, you go, yes, but there is resurrection. And God can take that person, even after decades, centuries. Reassemble their DNA, give them a glorified body, and give them eternal life that they will live forever. And you go, that doesn't make sense in the realm of the physical. But in the realm of the spirit, I believe that. Well, it's the same that's being said here. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and became the father of many nations. Verse 19, without weakening in his faith. <laughs> Obviously, Paul is talking about a certain day in Abraham's life, okay? Because we could catalog a few times when Abraham weakened in his faith. Now, if Abraham is going to be a champion for us, I'm kind of glad that that's true. Because there are days when I have faith. There really are. There are days when I do not have faith. There really are. <laughs> um, and so I look at an Abraham and I think, you know what? I, I can see some hope in the life of Abraham. Because Paul now looks at this good day in Abraham's life. Without weakening in faith, he faced the fact on the human level that his body was as good as dead. The word is, is impotent. Since he was about 100 years old. And Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Now that has got to be the most sanctified way of describing sex I've ever seen. Because that, let's face it, uh, thank you podcast, that's what his act of faith was. Okay? I have no idea when the last time that Abraham and Sarah had gotten together. Okay, that's not in the scripture, not shared with it. But I know it happened on this day. So, this particular day, the act of faith for Abraham was to have sex with Sarah. Why? Because he believed God. There's just no other way. I mean, that is what's being said here. And he was fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. That's why it was credited to him as righteousness. Against all hope, he exercised faith. He fell on his face and laughed in the presence of God. Sarah laughed at what God had said and then lied about it. They stopped laughing. And they believed God. I think we can be encouraged by that. When we see things in the natural and we go, there's, there's just no way here. Everything argues against this. But I'm going to choose to believe the promises of God. Against all hope, I'm going to hope. 
That is faith. Paul goes on the words, it was credited to him, were not written for him alone, okay? In case you were wondering. But also for us here in this room, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So just as he can take a hundred and a nine-year-old and bring life from what was dead, he can look at the Lord Jesus Christ and he can raise him from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification. Why is it important that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead? Because he was the sacrifice, the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice. The wrath of God was on him, and he died with the wrath of God upon him. So what does the resurrection say? What does it say? It says that God the Father was satisfied. He accepted the sacrifice. So, I sin tomorrow. I say, you know what? That is the, I name a number, time that I've done that sin. It's done. God cannot forgive me for that sin. I must be reminded of the resurrection because that sin was on Jesus. The wrath of God for that sin was on Jesus. And he raised him from the dead because... God the Father accepted Jesus' sacrifice for that sin that I will commit tomorrow. You need to understand that. You need to understand that. God is a God who can make living things from dead. can take things that do not exist and make them so. He delivered over to death. He was delivered over to death for our sins, but he was raised to life by God the Father for our justification. God was satisfied with the atonement and therefore raised Jesus Christ. I think we'd probably better look at James chapter 2 just to try to understand it because it seems and has seemed to great minds that James is contradicting Paul. As a matter of fact, Martin Luther, who was so overwhelmed with this passion for justification by faith and faith alone, when he came at first to the book of James, he had real difficulty with it. He called it an epistle of straw. It's also important to know that he only did that in his first edition uh, of his book, and he took it out in later editions, and he later did actually come to reconcile. So we shouldn't see Martin Luther as sort of stuck in time, and that's what he always believed. He did eventually come to peace with James, okay? Just so you understand that. But James says, in chapter 2, verse 14, what good is it, my brother and sisters, if people claim to have faith but have no, no deeds? Can such faith save them? What is the most important word in that verse? Such. What's he talking about? Is James arguing with Paul? Some think that he's, he's even having an argument with Paul. What's much more likely is that this was written before uh, Paul had written Romans, and that he had no such thing in mind. Was, was James denying that a person is saved by faith alone, and suggesting that, that deeds are important for salvation? No. He was talking about a type of faith. 
Because though Paul would absolutely say that faith alone saves, he wouldn't say that any old kind of faith saves. Lots of people say that they believe in Christ. Lots of people claim to have faith in Christ. But there are different kinds of faith. And so this particular individual claims to have faith but has no deeds. And the the word in Greek means that there's never been any. It's not just the one day they were a little short. This is like there's never been any uh, actions that have followed that faith. Can that kind of faith save? And Paul and James would go, no, no, wouldn't happen. So James' discussion is limited to that kind of faith. Here's an example. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. One of them says, go in peace, go warm yourself and be well, but does nothing about the physical needs. What good is it? Well, even on a practical level, do, do the words of his mouth make the guy warmer? No. He has to do something about it. In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. So in other words, they're trying to separate it out. You guys over there have faith, you guys over here have deeds, it's all good. And uh, James would go, no, 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 there's no divorce between faith and deeds at all. Um, So he says back to this objector, show me your faith without deeds. In other words, good luck with that. Why is that so hard? Because by definition, it can't be done. How do you demonstrate faith without deeds? Show me your faith. Okay. I was really believing, guys. It really was. I can't show you my faith without action. There has to be some action. It's just impossible. And I will show, James says, I will show you my faith by what I do. You will see it in action. So then he talks about a kind of faith. You believe that there's one God. And, and, and he says, good, that's excellent. Right on, that's orthodox faith. You believe that God is one. You believe in one God. He says, the, the demons actually believe that as well. And shudder. There's no agnostic demons. We were able to bring a demon and have a conversation with him here today. Do, do you believe in God? Well, I'm not really sure. You know, I, some days I do, but you know, I, no, I'm actually an atheist demon. I don't believe it's actually God. No, there's no agnostic atheist demons. Okay, they, when when a demon saw Jesus, you are the holy one of God. I know who you are. You want to look at for good Christology? Just talk to a demon. They know exactly who he is. They understand completely the sacrificial atonement of Jesus Christ. They understand completely the divinity of Christ. They get the virgin birth of Christ. They know he's coming again. They have their Christology down absolutely cold. But does it save them? Absolutely not. So James would say, it's perfectly possible to have faith that isn't saving faith. Even orthodox faith, even correct faith. You believe all the right things and not be saved. You foolish, foolish person, you want evidence, then this is why we have to study this. That faith without the deeds is useless or unproductive. And then he says, Abraham's faith, we're going to talk about that for a while, okay? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Now, wait a minute. I thought we just said that Abraham was justified by faith, not by what he did. Did James not get the memo? 
Okay, how, did he, how did he miss this? How, what are we going to do with this apparent contradiction? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did? Considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that his faith and actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. The scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. Ah, maybe we're on to something. Where does it say Abraham believed God and was credited for him as righteousness? Where? We've already read it tonight. Where is it? Genesis, Genesis, Genesis chapter 12. 15 is it 15? Yeah. Sorry, 15. I know I got that one wrong. The point is, it's way before this event. Okay? So this is years. This is like 25 years before. Because this is like after Isaac is born. This is like when he's already, you know, uh, at least a teenager. So this is a long, long time later. So... Historically, Abraham has already been justified by faith, period. So he is now a justified person, a saved person, if you like. So what is this business about his actions in sacrificing Isaac as justifying him? What is that, what is that about? Can you see it in the text? You see that his faith and actions were working together. His faith was made complete by what he did. Was it, was it sort of a half-full faith and this made it a full faith? That's not what's being said. The scripture was fulfilled. In other words, Paul is referring back to the original justification and James to the divine pronouncement on Abraham's act of faith. All right? So Abraham's works supported his faith, brought it to its goal, its perfection. Hebrews talks about Jesus being the author and perfecter of our faith. He was a friend of God. So here's the, here's the deal. God who had justified Abraham all those years back, at that time had had a great goal for that faith. This is important, guys. And he now had accomplished it fully. So Abraham, from the moment he believed God, the moment that God had promised him, look up at the stars, God, I believe you, he was eternally saved. He was justified by faith. But God had much bigger plans for him than just to have him saved and that's it. He had plans to take that infant faith, that little tiny mustard seed of faith that believed in God, and he wanted to grow that into this mountain of faith that could be so strong that even in the face of, of, of again, looking at it from a human level, if I kill this son Isaac, I sacrifice him to God, as abhorrent as that is, but if I do that, God's promise, how could it be fulfilled? The only way would be if God then raised him from the dead. There'd never been a resurrection. But Abraham believed it was possible. 
and said, well, I guess that must be what God has in mind. That is huge mountain faith. So what had God done? The thing that God saw in this tiny little embryo that saved Abraham, he saw where that could go. And he said, now you have perfected it. Now, Abraham, you, you have you, all that I saw there in the seed has now grown into this mighty oak tree. And I, and I see it's the thing that I wanted right from the beginning. This was my goal, this great goal I had for your faith. When you become a Christian, that tiny, tiny bit of faith that says, yes, Yes, I, I, I believe. After all, I, I really do believe in Jesus. I, I, I don't understand it all, but I, I do. I believe. That's a tiny little mustard seed. But God's, God's plan for you is so much bigger than just that. That you stay in that. Well, okay, I'll, I guess I. Okay, I'll go to heaven now. But what else? Well, God's plan is to take that and to through through the. The ups and downs of what we might do. We might do really well one day and pretty badly another day. But, but God has this long-term plan to grow our faith into this absolute strong fortress. This, this stronghold of faith that will take, even in adversity, when we look at the natural world and go, there's no way this could happen. But in the spirit world, I believe it. I believe the promises of God. So even though it doesn't look like it's possible, I believe God. God wants to take that faith and make it. And bring it to its goal. That's what James is seeing. God wants to bring it to its fruition. And so because of that, God who had justified Abraham had a great goal for his faith. He now accomplished it fully. So now he was so intimate with God. He was so trusting that he would place God first in his life. And what was the result? God would share his heart with Abraham. What was this whole thing about sacrificing his son? What was that all about? Abraham, you're my friend. You're my friend. I'm going to share with you the thing that's most important in my life. And I don't know how to tell you this, except for you to experience what it would be like to almost lose your only begotten son. Because that's going to happen to me someday, Abraham. I'm going to actually sacrifice my son. No one's going to stop me. I'm actually going to do that. So I'm going to bring you to the brink of that. And then I'm going to do what I'm going to do for you, Abraham. That's how I'm going to save you. It's how I'm going to save all the nations, all the people who are your children by faith that haven't even been born yet. I'm going to provide a lamb. I'm going to provide a ram. I'm going to provide a sacrifice. So Abraham doesn't have to die. You can, you can put that aside because I'm going to substitute a lamb. And that lamb, that ram, is not going to save you. But it's a picture of how I am going to offer my only son, Jesus Christ. And he is going to be a sacrifice. And that's really, Abraham, what your faith is in. Even though you don't understand it. All this business about faith that we are working on that's been perfected now, that's really what it's about. It's so you will believe in the substitution of another for your sin. You are at that point where you understand the intimacy of God. God's goal for us in making us people of faith is that he can share his heart with us. That he can share the most intimate details of his heart with us. That we understand his heart. He can share that with us and be a friend of God. 